The following is a ministry of the Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals, proclaiming biblical doctrine for a Reformed awakening. To learn more, call toll-free 1-800-488-1888 or visit AllianceNet.org. Good afternoon, everybody. Uh, thanks for joining us this weekend for our conference. Um, my name's Alan Edwards. I'm a pastor in the PCA at Kiskey Valley Presbyterian Church. Uh, there is no such place as Kiskey Valley. Um, it's a few little towns along the Kiskey River, about half an hour outside the Pittsburgh metro area to the east. Um, I'm also a sometimes counselor with the uh, Biblical Counseling Institute at uh, RPTS, where I graduated a few years ago. Um, I'm glad you're with us today. A few preliminary matters before we begin. First, um, you could have gone to any uh, seminar during this session. You, have, you had three other options of workshops being led by well-renowned published authors, and so I'm not sure what you're doing here because <laughs> I might have gone to one of those. Um, but that's just to say I don't know you. You chose a seminar on same-sex attraction for a reason. Most often when I speak in these kind of uh, scenarios, I'm talking with ministry professionals who are trying to come alongside folks who are struggling, parents who don't know what to make of their children's struggle, uh, and individuals who are struggling themselves. So uh, I'm presuming that we have a mixed audience. And that means I'm also presuming we have a mixed audience when it comes to understanding and conviction. Uh, just because you're at an evangelical and confessional conference doesn't necessarily mean that you're in a place where uh, you are in the historic evangelical uh, uh, orthodox position on uh, the scripture and uh, homosexuality. Um, so I'm just letting you know that I'm trying to bear that in mind. Uh, with that said, we can't do everything in this uh, one-hour seminar. I'm going to try to give uh, time at the end for questions. Um, we can't do everything. So uh, in the back of your handouts... Uh, I've given you a resource page. Uh, yes, there's more handouts right here on the front table. I'm sure someone can help you. Thank you, Jim. If you don't have a handout, just go ahead and raise your hand. Uh, on the back page of the handout, you'll find a resource list. Uh, this is something that I've personally compiled uh, and can vouch for 90% of the resources on here. Uh, three or four of the resources on this list are recommendations to me by people that I trust and respect, um, but I haven't had the time to interact with myself. And so because we can't cover everything, I tried to give you a map uh, to answer some questions. And if you have questions about these resources, we can, can, uh, we can talk about that in the Q&A. Um, your handout is three pages, and it gives you uh, a, a kind of lay of the land where we're hoping to go in this workshop. Uh, my goals are twofold. First... I'm hoping to give you some insight into the experience of same-sex attraction uh, from within the church. Um, and then secondly, uh, my goal is to give you some counsel uh, for ministry, how to be both faithful to Scripture in these matters, but also fruitful as you minister or you uh, walk alongside people who are struggling uh, with same-sex attraction. So uh, that said, let me open us uh, in prayer. Father, we thank you for this weekend and the opportunity we have to consider how your word speaks to and applies to matters that are um, hot-button cultural issues, 
uh, but, but that are not just disembodied cultural issues, but for many of us, real and present matters in our own heart and life. Father, give us wisdom to be faithful to your word and give us hearts uh, receptive of your grace so that we might pour it fruitfully into the lives of others. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. I can remember laying in bed at the age of 15, uh, the ceiling fan going round and round and round, gadunk, 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 staring at it at 11 o'clock at night, thinking, I'm gay, I'm gay, holy crap, what do I do now? You know what, ki- you know what uh, scripture verse every kid who grows up in the conservative evangelical church knows about homosexuality? They know Leviticus 18. You shall not lie with a man as with a man, for it is an abomination. So here I was at 15 years old, lying there in bed thinking, I'm an abomination. I prayed the sinner's prayer. Uh, I was a sturdy Calvinist as a kid, and so I was pretty sure God regretted having elected me before the foundation of the earth. (laughs) Because... Because I had this piece of my understanding of myself that was wildly discordant with who I portrayed myself to be. I wasn't just your average youth group kid. I was the annoying kid in your Sunday school class who had the answer to every question. I had every Christian t-shirt sold at Majesty Christian Bookstore. I had every CD produced by Carmen, including Carmen Yo Kids, the hip-hop pop CD for children by the Pentecostal preacher. I, I, was, I was a raging, Calvinistic, fundamentalist Christian kid, and this thing about me had to mean that I was damned. I can remember when my parents found the homosexual pornography on our family computer. This was 1997. We had an old IBM Aptiva. I didn't know how to hide my search history, so we sat down for the most uncomfortable conversation I've ever had on the good furniture in the nice living room. (laughs) And that conversation kind of broke open this happy image that we'd been portraying as a family. Uh, My parents were, became believers as as adults. We always told people we were a becoming Christian family. Um, I had been raised in the church from six and everyone always said how good your kids are. Uh, how how well-behaved your boys are, and this was a big fracture in that. So my parents, uh, not knowing what else to do, uh, contacted a major uh, Christian counseling organization and found local counselors that they thought might be able to help. And over my last two years of high school, I bounced from counselor to counselor, working on my relationship with my mom, my relationship with my dad, my issues with self-esteem. And the same pattern emerged again and again, Um, go to the counselor, cry my guts out, ask for help, tell him I want to change, fail to change, but tell my counselor I'm doing a lot better because I was the oldest child who always did everything right. So told my counselor and my parents I was doing a lot better, rinse, wash, repeat with the next counselor. I bounced around to four different counselors in two years going through that cycle. We did not live in a moment or a time where any of us thought it was okay to talk to our pastor or our elders or anyone at church about this. And so while my parents were trying to protect me, and that I think was a good and godly instinct, the unintended consequence 
the unintended message that they communicated to me was that this was so dirty, so messy, so shameful that it had to be dealt with in secret. And so my understanding of myself coming out of high school was, unless I fix this, I'm not okay. I went off to a Christian college and my identity fractured even further. I had been getting my identity from being the good Christian kid in my public school, but then I went to Christian college and they were all good Christian kids too, except for they played acoustic guitar and frisbee. (laughs) And I couldn't keep up anymore. So instead of my finding my identity in, um, in a very legalistic, moralistic, outward performance-oriented Christianity, I swung to finding my identity in a gritty, authentic, I'm going to be that real Christian. Here's the thing. I was finding my identity in what I did, not who Christ is. All of this broke apart, I think, around my junior year. I came to the conclusion that... Um, I either needed to leave Christianity or I needed to make my homosexual feelings comport with Christianity. And so I did everything I could to tie homosexual activity and Christianity together, uh, including uh, research into the gay liberation theological movement, uh, exegetical work and study on every passage uh, of the scripture, writing papers, doing independent studies, Uh, trying to make Christianity and homosexuality fit together. Um, I don't have time to do all that exegetical work for you now, but if you want a handy resource, in your packet there's a book recommended by uh, Kevin DeYoung, What Does the Bible Teach About Homosexuality? It's for sale upstairs by Crown and Covenant. It's brief, it's succinct, uh, and it's very helpful. Uh, It wasn't out when I was going through this, but uh, it's a book I would recommend today to defend the historic position. So uh, I couldn't make homosexuality and Christianity fit together, so the only option for me was to leave Christianity because I couldn't change, I couldn't be good enough, I couldn't be moral enough on the one hand, and and I still couldn't find my identity from being real enough on the other hand. Um, And so while I'm struggling with uh, acting out with other people for the first time, secretly finding people on the internet to meet up with, still using pornography, I decide I have to leave Christianity and so uh, I work through uh, the doctrines of the gospel. I work through Jesus, and I get down to this pretty pivotal moment. It was winter. I was in the computer lab uh, chatting with a friend on AOL Instant Messenger, which very narrowly defines the years I went to college as 2000 to 2006. Um, <laughs> And we talked for hours. He was a seminary student at Princeton, and we talked for hours about the resurrection. Because here's what I got to. Um, It is very clear as you read the New Testament that Jesus receives the ethical, moral uh, system of the Old Testament. Uh, It's very clear that he upholds the, the historic view of sexuality. And I only have to accept what Jesus teaches if Jesus isn't who he says he is. He says he's God. If Jesus isn't God, I don't have to accept his teaching. And the absolute definitive proof of Christ's divinity is his resurrection. So that's where the debate uh, narrowed down to. If I can get past the resurrection, I can get past Jesus, and the Bible does not have to be the authoritative truth for me. Like Jacob wrestling with the angel, I walked away with a limp. Um, I was defeated. Uh, I could not uh, get past the doctrines of the resurrection. 
the apologetics for it, the historical uh, evidence, the reasonable explanation for the rise of Christianity, I, I couldn't get past the resurrection. Now, as a good Calvinist, I know that this was the Holy Spirit working in my heart because I don't think apart from him that I would go there because I didn't want to. I didn't want to feel this dirt and shame and guilt. Um, so I went into this new season coming out of college uh, of believing that the Bible is true, believing that I can't live out what feels most naturally to me, um, but mourning uh, because I just couldn't see hope uh, in light of this condition that I had. And it was a year later that I sat down in the Park Classic Diner on Route 30 in Jeanette, PA, with a guy named Tim Geiger from Harvest, USA. And Tim pointed out to me a truth that I think I really had neglected. I gave him my litany of victimhood. Why am I going through this? Why can't I change? Don't you know I've tried? Tim looked me in the eye and said, Alan, you're getting something out of this. You struggle this way because you want to. That did not seem fair. (laughs) That made me very angry. But what it did was it revealed something true in my heart. As much as I wanted to change, what I really wanted was to not need God and to be okay and acceptable and strong enough on my own to be a good Christian. Uh, As much as I said I wanted Christ to be first, the truth is that Out of my adventures in homosexuality, I got affirmation and affection and freedom from pain and suffering and uh, respect. And and I wasn't willing to give up that empty cistern because I thought I was drinking life from it. Here's what I'm trying to tell you. Tim was the first one after all of these counselors and therapists and psychologists. And and, and I know, and and I want to be cautious to say, I know people who have gone through different methods and, and come to good biblical convictions, but I'm saying for me, it wasn't until someone put it in simple terms of daily faith and repentance, daily gospel, daily grace. My issue was not a sex issue. My issue wasn't a mental health issue. My issue was an idolatry issue until I stopped worshiping this false God uh, and, and worshiped the true God, until I exchanged the, the creature and, and turned instead to the creator I wasn't going to experience freedom. And I can say that from that time onward, a significant change happened. And the change wasn't freedom from all homosexual uh, desire. The change wasn't from all um, experience of attraction to people of the same gender. It wasn't a reorientation change, um, except, for it was a, uh, in, except for this. Instead of being oriented toward my idols, God grabbed a hold of my heart, and I wonder sometimes if this is the first time I grasped the gospel and saw that living as a Christian isn't about, um, isn't about achieving enough holiness that I don't need God. It's about daily faith, repentance, and grace. And so the gospel set me free in uh, powerful ways in that season of my life. Um, I want you to, I tell my story for this reason. I want you to understand, and you probably already know this. I think I had to say this more five years ago, but I don't know if I have to say it as much now. This is not an issue outside the walls of the church. This is an issue in our Sunday school classes. This is an issue in our youth groups. This is an issue in our covenant families with our covenant kids. So what I want you to see and understand is that within the covenant family, Uh, God has given us the means and tools to minister to people who are struggling with same-sex attraction. 
He's given us the gospel. He's given us the word. He's given us grace, faith, and repentance. And he has called us toward all people, regardless of what's going on in their heart, to admonish the idol. This is First Thessalonians 5, 18, I think. To admonish the idol, to encourage the weak, to help the faint-hearted, and to be patient with them all. Um, so how do we be faithful to God's word as we minister to people who are struggling with homosexuality and same-sex attraction? And how do we become a fruitful, redemptive community uh, as we seek to do this? Um, I think first on your outline you'll see this title, uh, Faithful Truths SSA Strugglers Need to Hear. Uh, three doctrines that I think are important for us uh, and, and I'm often giving this in this talk in the context of broader evangelical circles. Um, and, and so these might not be the systematic theological terms uh, that, that you might use in a, in a, in a, in other, anyway, just keep moving. Um, first, we as the church need to maintain and to teach clearly the authority of scripture, its sufficiency to speak to all of life. You'll hear later tonight in the plenary session, uh, Rosaria Butterfield, who said in an interview recently, don't presume that the worst sin your gay and lesbian neighbors' life is their sexuality. It's not. The worst sin is unbelief. If truth comes from experience, reason, feeling, uh, if truth comes from the creation, there's no reason to not embrace homosexuality except for some generic concerns about health that can be ameliorated through various medical technologies. Um, but if there is an authoritative definer of human nature, if there's something that speaks to us from outside the stream, then we have to pay attention. And, and so upholding the Bible as the authoritative inspired and errant, infallible word of God is not an unloving, um, angry pursuit as some in the, this, this area and this conversation have seemed to say. It's the most loving thing we can do because the Bible gives us a definition of who we are that doesn't arise from what we've done or how we've felt. And so when it comes to sexuality, Rather than softening our stances, rather than softening the scripture to open up and make room for alternative sexual expressions, we need to compassionately and yet faithfully teach the biblical sexual ethics. And so, uh, as pastors or elders or Sunday school leaders or small group leaders, you need to make sure that you understand what the Bible says in light of evangelicals redefining and reinterpreting biblical passages on these matters. It used to be that the attack on the historic Orthodox position came from uh, liberal Christianity, and by liberal I mean the brand of Christianity that denies uh, the, the divine revelation of God, that denies the miraculous, that denies the divinity of Christ. It used to be that that's where the attack on the traditional view of sexuality came from. But today it comes from people who sing the same songs that you do in worship. It comes from people who believe in the atonement and who, people who believe that Jesus is the only way of salvation. 
groups like the Gay Christian Network, authors like Justin Lee and Matthew Vines, uh, pro- profess to speak from within conservative evangelical Christianity. Uh, but we'll see some answers to those objections in a moment. The second thing that we need to continue to teach as the church is identity, not founded in how we feel, but in founded in who Christ is. Biblical identity. First, under biblical identity, sexual preference is not, is not the definition of a person's identity. It was Andrew Lloyd Webber who wrote the lyric in his uh, hit musical, which totally ruins the story of Joseph, um, that you are what you feel. Um, we live in the feeling-based identity culture. Tim Keller uh, has been using this uh, metaphor in a couple talks, uh, one at Wheaton and uh, uh, most recently I, that I heard one at Wheaton, that, um, that every society... Uh, identifies acceptable desires to identify with. So take, uh, take the um, Middle Ages uh, knight walking down the street who has two impulses that arise in him without his conscious choosing. Impulse one, beat the snot out of the guy walking toward him. Impulse two, kiss the man walking next to him. In his culture and society, he suppresses one natural desire and acts on the other, and his identity is found in his strength as a warrior. Take that same man, put him in 21st century Manhattan, and he has two impulses arising him seemingly out of nowhere, to hit the man walking toward him on Madison Avenue, or to kiss the man walking next to him. And he suppresses one desire and acts on the other, and in that finds his identity. The culture forever has been saying you are what you feel to some sense or degree. And we as the church are complicit in muddling identity. For example, the evangelical church has in some ways treated marriage as an integral and exclusive part of Christian identity. To be a Christian means to be a a godly, moral husband and father. To be a Christian woman means to be a godly and moral wife and mother. And while marriage is good and given by God and is a blessing uh, to us, it is not the same as who we are. It's Paul in 1 Corinthians 7 who tells us that marriage is not the highest ideal, but rather a concession. And Jesus himself in Matthew 19 talks about People who are made eunuchs by other men, people who are eunuchs from birth, and people who are eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom. If marriage and if sex are integral to identity, and if we as the church communicate intentionally or inadvertently that to be a good Christian means to be married, then we leave out Jesus and Paul. (laughs) And we can't do that. So what identity do we hold out? Galatians 2, I have been crucified with Christ and I no longer live, but Christ lives within me. Ephesians, uh, uh, excuse me, Colossians 3, Christ who is your life, when he appears, you will also appear with him in glory. 
Christians who struggle with same-sex attraction and all the panoply of sexual sins are going to be attempted by this culture that says your sexual preference is your identity to find their identity in that sexual preference. But listen to how Paul talks about the struggle with sexual sin in 2 Corinthians 6. He says, here are the people who will not inherit the kingdom of God, the adulterous, the idolaters, the sexually immoral, both partners in homosexual relationships, the passive and active partner. And he says this to the, to the church in Corinth. The, the, like the, the, the church in Corinth, like the sex church of the ancient world. He says, these people will not inherit the kingdom of God. And then he says in verse uh, 10, but such were some of you. But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. Few of you, uh, I would guess, are tempted to find your identity in your sin patterns. I'm a drunk Christian. I'm an angry Christian. I'm uh, I'm a greedy Christian. Few of you are likely to find your, uh, your hmm. you may though be tempted to find your identity into, in things that are not particularly sin. I'm a proud American. That's my identity. I am, uh, I am, I am financially successful. That's my identity. My children are obedient. That's my identity. We don't, in terms of scriptural language, we don't find our identity in how well we're doing, in our successes, in our cultural heritage, in our race. We actually don't even find it in how good of a Christian we are because we believe that even our righteousness is as good as filthy rags. We don't find our identity in our successes. We don't find our identity in our failures. We have an unmodified identity. We are in Christ. Anyone who is in Christ is a new creation. The old has gone and the new has come. Galatians 3 says there's neither male nor female, Jew nor Greek, slave nor free. We are one in Christ. So we must proclaim that identity comes in Christ, which means we have to avoid cheering identity in success and jeering identity in failure. Lastly, We as the church must continue to proclaim clearly that all desires in the human heart are disordered. All desires in the human heart are disordered. Some of you, uh, most of you probably don't know that in our workshop today is a person who did their PhD thesis on this question. And so I'm a little nervous saying what I'm about to say because I know he has his PhD in this matter. But I won't point Jim Widener out to you. <laughs> As I was coming out of my struggle with homosexuality, uh, coming out of my struggle is confusing in multiple ways. Um, as I was leaving the darkest days of my struggle, um, I was very encouraged by this language of identity. My identity is in being an adopted son of God. To the point where I began to say things that sounded like um, what you do intentionally is what makes you guilty. 
when you meditate on a thought, when you harbor it, when you act out, that's what makes you guilty. But because I'm an adopted son of God, just because I feel this way doesn't make me guilty. That was natural. I didn't choose that. And, and that's a, we could have a whole another excursus on causes of homosexual desire, and we can do that at some other point. Um, or you can read a book or whatever. Um, suffice it to say, I didn't wake up one morning and think, gay, that's a good one. No. Okay. Um, but, I, but, uh, but through studying the Ten Commandments, I've come to realize that, that, um, that I did not want to be culpable for something that I felt like came naturally to me, but I am. The Tenth Commandment, J.I. Packer says that in the Tenth Commandment, you shall not covet your neighbor's anything that belongs to your neighbor. He says in the Tenth Commandment, God's searchlight moves from actions to attitudes, from motions to motives. The Tenth Commandment is an umbrella commandment. The first nine say what we're not allowed to do. The Tenth tells us we're not allowed to want anything that God has not apportioned to us. The Tenth Commandment tells us that each and every one of us want things that we're not allowed to want. And you don't have to consciously choose to want something. You have a wrongly oriented wanter in your heart from birth. (laughs) And so in this way, if you feel like homosexuality is something so far and distant from you, let me bring it a little closer to you. When you don't want to talk to your wife after work and show her love, but when you want to be selfish, when um, when you see what your neighbor has and you want what they have, you didn't choose to want it, it just happened when you saw it, you are going through what people who struggle with same-sex attraction are going through every day. It, comes, it, it springs up out of, I have no idea where that I want something I'm not allowed to want. If you are married, if you're a married woman, and you uh, relate to a man, a friend or a colleague or a coworker who's just a really good listener and he's really encouraging and he doesn't just try to jump to and solve your problems, and you just happen to think to yourself one day... <laughs> Boy, I wish he were my husband. You're wanting, relationally, someone that you're not allowed to want. If you are a man, and you see any woman who's not your wife, it takes a lot less for us men sometimes. If you, if you want sexual intimacy with anyone who's not your wife, you have a wrongly oriented wanter. You understand homosexuality. You're, you're wanting... You're wanting something that God has told you you're not allowed to want. And all of us experience disordered desire. We all want things we're not allowed to want. And therefore, because of the 10th commandment, we are guilty for it. Yes, you're not just guilty for the things you've thought, said, or done. You're guilty for the things that come naturally to you. Anyone who reads Psalm 51 would say this, right? Anyone who reads Psalm 51, I am evil, born in sin, thou desirest truth within, to quote the hymnified version. Um, Romans 7, the thing I want to do, I don't do, and the thing I don't want to do, I do. You understand this. This is, this is the historic, orthodox, biblical teaching on human nature, that we are guilty for all the sins we actually commit and for our nature, which is in itself sinful. Homosexuality, uh, so, so, so let me say this. If you are in the room today and struggling with homosexuality, or if you want to help people who are struggling with homosexuality, teaching that all people have desires that are, are natu- seem natural and 
are sinful, you're inviting them in to the, to the fact that they're not alone in this. Homosexuality feels very lonely, especially in the conservative, reformed, evangelical church. It feels very lonely to experience this. But there are scriptures that are comforting in the midst of that struggle. 1 Corinthians 10, no sin has, no temptation has overtaken you that is not common to a man. Jesus, while I don't think Hebrews 4 teaches that Jesus was tempted by everything we are tempted by, that he was tempted in every way at least tells us that he is consistently presented the opportunity to find his life and identity outside of obedience to his Father. Not only are we all in the same boat, but Jesus understands the temptation to want what we're not supposed to want. And what's more, that Jesus is not ashamed to call us brothers. Hebrews 2.11. I think Christians really want to talk about how bad homosexuality is. I'm not going to lie. If I hear one more joke about transgender bathrooms at this conference, I think I'm going to flip out. (laughs) I mean, okay, everyone's mad about it. Fine. Great. 80, 90% of uh, abuse to children happens within family members and churches, but let's really worry about the bathrooms and beat up on the trannies. That's great. Um, I thought that God was disappointed that he had called me his son. But Jesus is not ashamed to call uh, sinners like us brothers, that the father, um, that he, uh, in the end of Zephaniah says that he he rejoices over us with singing. Uh, Galatians 4 tells us that he has given us the spirit of sonship. We are no longer slaves, but sons. These precious truths of God's disposition toward us based on his will, not ours, based on his action, not ours. These twin truths that, that God is, is favorably disposed to us in Christ and that everyone experiences disordered desire are precious truths that we need to communicate to people who are struggling. We are, we are quickly running out of time. And so um, because of that, uh, I want to move to page three. Um, and that's because on page two, we've actually touched on some answers to common objections um, before, sorry, before you move, go back, go back to, look at page two at least. The two quotations on page two are from self-professed evangelical Christians who have written on the topic of homosexuality and its acceptability within the Christian tradition. Um, uh, let me see on the resource page here. Um, okay. Uh, let me, let me just say this. Because the challenge is not coming from outside of, quote, evangelical Christianity, but within, because the, because the um, battlefield, the old battlefield was, you know, gay liberation theologians of the 1970s, 80s, 90s, and, and before and after were saying, the Bible's not the inspired word of God, uh, and so these sexual ethics aren't what matters. This overarching meta narrative of freedom and loving the outcast, that's what matters. And so homosexuality is okay. That's, that is the narrative of, of, of non-evangelical gay liberation purportedly Christian theologians. Today, 
um, it has come within the camp of people that believe the Bible is God's word. And so, rather than talking about the law as a good invitation to, to learn how to love God and love our neighbor, the rejection of the law of God and the emphasis on, um, on a love-only Christianity, which, which really started not in the whole gay debate, but, but has been kind of the motif of evangelical Christianity for 20 years. God loves you, has a wonderful plan for your life. That's the gospel. Um, that gospel doesn't call for change or transformation. What, what I'm trying to say to you is we have to understand that the battle line has shifted. It's, it is in some sense in-house. So to, to effectively engage, you need to hear what they're saying, right? If you read these quotes from Lee and Vines, you hear in their voices and in their words pain and hurt that has come to them from Christianity. And so a dichotomy drawn, either you are hurtful, painful, and you uphold the historic truth, or you've gotten with the times and you've focused on the real important part of the gospel, which is love. Um, And so again, I can't recommend to you enough Kevin DeYoung's book, uh, What Does the Bible Really Teach About Homosexuality? Also on your resource list, uh, two-thirds... just under halfway down, uh, Lefebvre, Michael, The Gospel and Sexual Orientation. This is the testimony of the RPCNA. Uh, I am not a member of the Reformed Presbyterian Church of North America, uh, but this is probably the simplest, most succinct uh, explanation of how did we get here and, and, um, and how do we communicate the biblical truth. That both of those volumes are for sale upstairs. Um, as a counter to Vines and Lee, I can't encourage you enough to look at, uh, just below that, Ed Shaw's book, Same Sex Attraction in the Church. It's also available upstairs. It's like they looked at my resource list. That's pretty cool. Ed Shaw is an Anglican priest. Uh, and then at the very top is God Anti-Gay by Sam Alberry. Uh, Sam and Ed are both Anglican priests who experience same-sex attraction, who, live in, who do not identify as gay Christians, uh, but live in faithfulness and celibacy um, in light of that. So, sorry, Sam Alberry, it's the first listed, and Ed Shaw at the bottom. Uh, Ed's book is narrative, and it's compelling theologically. Sam's book, a lot less narrative, but, but kind of apologetic, just answering simple questions. So let me close with some counsel. Um, so this is your third page. Uh, Fruitful, building a redemptive community. Uh, If you were in Jim's, I think it was either earlier today or it's tomorrow morning. uh, Yeah, it was earlier today. If you were in Jim's seminar on um, on how can the church minister, uh, I didn't I didn't talk to Jim ahead of time. He and I have worked together, uh, so I don't know if some of this is repetitive to you. But but I just want to offer you some counsel in light of Paul's teaching in Ephesians four on how the church is to function in light of the gospel. And so let me briefly look at this, and then we'll open up for questions. Um, Ephesians 1 through 3 are an exposition of what is the gospel and give um, implications, what does the gospel mean uh, for you if you are in Christ. In fact, in Ephesians 1 through 3, I don't think that there is a verb in the command sense, in the imperative sense. Uh, But in Ephesians 4, the conversation shifts and says, if the gospel is true about you as individuals in a community, 
How do you function as a church? And Ephesians 4 starts that conversation and then it gets more and more specific in 5 and 6. So Ephesians 4 tells us some things first about a redemptive culture. A redemptive culture in the church is built by, verse 15, speaking the truth in love. That's how we grow into maturity. And, verse 25, putting away falsehood. The verb in verse 25 for to put away is the verb used in the Greek Olympic Games uh, to put away your clothes so that you can run effectively. Remember the Greeks were naked in their Olympics. Um, We are really good... We are really good in the church in putting on, putting on the happy uh, mask that everything's okay, I'm fine, you're fine, good, we're all fine. Not like those sinners out there. Um, We can't speak the truth in love if we're not putting away falsehood uh, from one another. Secondly, we need to build redemptive expectations Too often in the church, we expect that you needed grace and repentance when you got saved, and now you should be okay. But after um, exposing the meaning and implications of the gospel for three chapters and reminding the Ephesians that they've been given people who teach the gospel in chapter 4, in verse 17, he warns the Christian church in Ephesus to no longer walk as the Gentiles with darkened understanding, alienation from the life of God, calloused hard hearts, ignorance. Paul is telling Christians in Ephesus that you will be tempted to live like you used to live. How do we overcome ignorance and hard hearts with calluses on them? We rip the calluses off, we get to the sensitive heart, and we speak the truth and love to one another. But but what I'm saying is we should expect Christians to continue to struggle with sin. Um, So, redemptive expectations, the expectation that Christians are going to be tempted by the old manner of life. Um, There are people who experience life-dominating patterns and habits of sin that in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, are changed. Uh, Maybe that's you. You were able to quit drinking on a dime. Uh, You never had uh, a lustful thought again after a particularly good sermon. Um, or particularly bad experience with your wife. Um, But generally speaking, the love of God encounters us where we are and transforms us from that point forward. Uh, C.S. Lewis, I think, is the one who talks about the the paradigm of uh, the closer we grow toward God, toward the throne of grace, the further away we realize we were. That should be a common habit and pattern for Christians. Thirdly, we need redemptive leaders. Verse 11 uh, says that the church has been gifted with pastors, teachers, prophets, and evangelists. These are gospel speakers for a purpose to equip the saints for this work of speaking the truth and love to one another. If you are a pastor and a teacher uh, and an elder here, you can't do all the work yourself. Your job is to equip the body for this work. If you're in the body, it is your job to learn from your pastors and your elders how to apply these gospel, these precious gospel truths to people who are struggling with sin. If we do not do this, verse 14, we are like children tossed about by wind and waves, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. We need leaders who are filling people in a cascade effect so that they can fill others. I didn't number these, so nextly, we need redemptive relationships. 
Uh, there are no lone rangers in the church. Hyper-individualism has no place in covenant community. Ephesians 4.16, we are joined together uh, like joints. If you're, uh, for most of us, you cannot detach any of your limbs. Some of you maybe can due to circumstances. But the parts of the body are connected to one another uh, and that is a picture for the church. We are that connected to one another. Why do we have to put away falsehood and be naked spiritually before one another? Because Ephesians 4.25, we are members of one another. Uh, Paul Tripp, in his video series on uh, instruments in Redeemer's hands, repeatedly reminds the church that we are dying from fatally casual relationships. And yeah, someone amen. That's good. Amen. Yeah. That's true. Amen. And so finally, as I've been saying, what we need to uphold is a redemptive identity. When people struggle with the former manner of life, verses 17, 18, 19, we remind them that that is not who they are anymore. Verse 20, that is your old self. You have a new self. And so every day you need to put on that nude self with a renewed mind, verses 20, 20 through 24. This will not happen unless we give others the keys to our heart, unless we allow them into our lives. If your church and the leaders of your church are not modeling a redemptive community, don't expect the people struggling with the most culturally sensitive sins to find your church as a place where they can get healing and grace. If the leaders of your church are not regularly in the habit of confessing, confessing sin and, and, um, and, and not, again, right? So, so the phrase, well, don't hang your dirty laundry out. That's a good phrase. That's important. We shouldn't revel in our sins and the muck and the filth. But is it possible that we tipped a little too far one way? Is it possible that as a church culture, uh, we tipped so far away from honesty and authenticity that we've created cultures where people think that they're the only ones who are struggling with sin because they're the only ones who know themselves? Yes. Leaders, <laughs> leaders, we have to set the tone. Uh, parents, if your children are struggling with sexual sin, if, they're struggling with, uh, if they are living in the LGBT lifestyle, and you have never modeled for them repentance... Why do you expect them to repent? If you've never modeled for them humility and your need for grace every day, why do you expect them to know theirs? So this is my counsel. We can form redemptive communities because of the gospel. I think Ephesians 4 is a model for us. This has been a ministry of the Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals. The Alliance is a coalition of pastors, scholars, and churchmen who hold to the historic creeds and confessions and who proclaim biblical doctrine in today's church. The Alliance hosts conferences, produces radio and internet broadcasts, and publishes online and in print. We continue only with your support. To give a financial gift or learn more, call toll-free. 1-800-488-1888 or visit AllianceNet.org.